Well, welcome. This is episode 59 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Remington, with me, the Professor Peter Van Onselen, head of uh, political coverage for Network 10, among many other hats that he wears. G'day, thought, Hugh. G'day, Peter. I thought we might launch into today just using, we should speak today in the language of a uh, Labour Party backroom branch stacker. And we'll just see we've got after it. We'll, just, we'll start effing and blinding. Uh, we'll start, you know, abusing women freely. We'll start, you know, making all kinds of epithets about gay folks. Um, we'll just sort of do it like the backroom boys do it, just for a bit of fun. What do you reckon? It just, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? You know, just hearing the, 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 the language and the attitudes as part of those recordings. I, I'm more disturbed by that than I am by the actual potential violations of electoral rules and misuse of taxpayers' dollars around branch stacking and all of that, all those allegations that we'll see what does or doesn't eventuate with the authorities. The reason I'm more concerned about the attitudes is because they're so vile uh, in their descriptors and and, and, and so backward in, in their thinking, whereas I think most people probably assume that there are blurred lines when it comes to political officers and how they use uh, their provisions for the whole partisan pursuit of branch stacking or whatever else it might be in the partisan political arena versus what they're supposed to be doing around public policy and all the rest of it. I, I have low expectations there, even though I don't justify it or condone it. But the, you know, the language and the sexism and the bigoted uh, rhetoric that you hear, that's the stuff that I just think, oh, God, guys, we're in 2020. Really? So just to be clear, we're talking about Adam Somurek, who was uh, until two days ago, uh, the the secret power. Who knew? Who'd heard of him? Al Anthony Albanese says he'd barely ever met the man, even though he sat on the federal executive of the party. Uh, nevertheless, he was a guy who had built up this massive power. So we, we're led to believe within the Labour Party, the power to decide who gets to uh, stand, who gets to, to be put into safe seats or into winnable positions on Senate tickets, uh, simply through running the numbers, which he was doing. So it is being alleged through the stacking of branches. And he's been sacked from the cabinet. He's leaving the Labour Party altogether because of his language, not because of the branch stacking. There's not yet been a decision on what uh, sanctions might be against him within the party or within the law on the business of branch stacking, using of taxpayers' money, uh, but on the language is, was enough to see him flung out of the system. You seem quite relaxed about, uh, or relatively relaxed about, the branch stacking elements well of it. Well, let, yet, well, let, 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 if you care about a free, if you care about a democratic process, to which so you know the 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 quaint notions that we have is that we all have a stake in the democratic process, and there is some transparency, so we know what it is that we have a stake in. This guy is a total abuser. It is being alleged of the democratic process, surely. Yeah, and look, let, let, let's be clear. I'm not relaxed about it. I'm just not surprised, I guess. I've been battered down so much over the years um, by what I see as, as either flagrant or cautious misuses uh, of taxpayers' dollar vis-a-vis -vis the political system that none of that surprises me. Uh, although having said that, and, and you know, let's not talk specifically, I guess, about this case because we, do, do it, we don't really know where it's going to go. In, in the broader sense... There are different versions of use and misuse of, of branch stacking. If somebody is paying for people's memberships and literally just creating what is essentially an artificial number of members 
who therefore give them clout in the internal party democratic process. That is a lot worse as branch stacking goes than what might be considered branch building, which is actually genuinely, you're still stacking, but you are actually just recruiting people to come and join a party, albeit because you're trying to get the numbers to then take out a city member or to dominate an electoral division or whatever it might be. They are quite different because one is, if you like, using the rules within the rules, which is what has been happening in politics since political parties were formed virtually. The other is actually breaking the rules and trying to get away with it because it's against party rules uh, to be able to pay for people's memberships on both sides of the political divide. We know it happens to some extent, but uh, it, it needs to be, if you like, policed and stamped out. Hugh, one of the fascinating things for me about all of this, I used to do a lot of research in this area. Political parties are fascinating things because they are actually technically private organisations. So the Liberal Party and the Labor Party are private organisations. They're not actually public organisations. However, because you know, government is public uh, and even the, the formalities around the structure of opposition is also public, you've got these awfully blurred lines where political parties are technically private organisations which then get all these public taxpayer benefits that are accumulated around them. And even if we go to something like fundraising, which is not the issue here in Victoria, but something like fundraising, political parties as private organisations, you know, akin to companies really, they fundraise and they make money out of selling time with ministers. Now, no one wants to hang out with Minister X or Y because they're a good bloke or because they've got some interesting philosophical political insights, which few of them do, by the way. They do it because of the power they wield in their public position, not because they're a member of a political party. So they are really weird organisations. And that's why we see things like this that happen, where private organisations and what might be a misuse within a company equivalent within a private organisation becomes a public issue where you can potentially have electoral entitlements, examinations, and you can have all sorts of oversight because it's taxpayers' dollars, our money, which gets perhaps misused um, by these private organisations and by individuals trying to control these private organisations. So there's a taxpayer money issue. And we have to say that in the recently published Malcolm Turnbull memoirs, he speaks gleefully of his branch stacking efforts um, when he wanted to take out a sitting member, Peter King, to take the seat of Wentworth, which he ultimately successfully did. And he did that. And, and he speaks with quite delight at the game, really, uh, of uh, stacking up particularly the Point Piper branch of the Liberal Party. You can only imagine down there on the hub, while Peter King was stacking on the other side. Yeah. Well, but I, the difference being is that they weren't paying for the memberships and they weren't using taxpayer money on, on using political staffers, or at least, you know, it wasn't being suggested that, that was taking place. Certainly wasn't coming from Malcolm Turnbull's side. Uh, it was just, as you say, building up the numbers in order to say, look, we've got the numbers to take down the pre-selection. And, and, and I need to give a disclaimer now that you've raised that because I was involved in that. Uh, so this was pre my academic career briefly post my time doing a little bit of political staffing uh, when I was a, a callow young man, not to suggest I'm not still callow, but I, um, it was right before I moved to Perth to take up my first tenured role in academia and I'd got the job, but there was, you know, a, a sort of a six to 12 month delay before the starting point of it with the new year or the new um, academic year. And Malcolm Turnbull approached me to help out uh, in this, you know, branch stack, let's call it what it was. 
uh, and I'd grown up in the broader area of the eastern suburbs. I, I brought in over 100 members myself. Uh, I brought in other people that brought in, you know, 50 plus members each. And I was part of the whole thing. Uh, and I ended up being one of his pre-selectors, actually. Um, were you a not, member not, of the party? Yeah, I had to join. Yeah. I mean, I joined for that purpose. So, and for which, which branch? Uh, I joined the Point Piper branch because that was the one that we knew we controlled. And there was so one other... We don't need to imagine it. You can tell us all about it. And so you well, yeah, brought I... in 100 people <laughs> and then some of them brought in up to 50 more. And yep. presumably... Hundreds all... of people came in. This was the biggest branch stack in Australian political history, to my knowledge, certainly within the Liberal Party. We more than doubled the size of the New South Wales Liberal Party's membership in that one division of Wentworth because of the size of the branch stack. And interestingly, Peter King was a nobody one-term sitting member, but he was able to bring in as many people as Turnbull brought in because he brought in all the anti-Turnbull forces, particularly monarchists. And to my knowledge, there was no one coming in on either side whose memberships were being paid for by anyone. They were all paying in their own way. Plenty of affluent Money, money in, not being in an that. issue in, in Wentworth. Exactly. Um, but, you know, what you do, I, I remember it. I was... I recruited a whole bunch of friends and parents of friends and all the rest of it who I knew over the years. Um, and they all came in, they paid their own way. I can't remember what the membership fee was, but it was somewhere around $50, $60. Um, but they were doing it as a favour to me, never to be seen again uh, in, in the branch. Membership numbers, of course, plummeted on both sides once this whole thing was over. Um, but they swelled dramatically for that one 12-month period uh, to be able to increase the number of pre-selectors in this, in this arms race that went on between Peter King and, and Malcolm Turnbull. It was a really fascinating thing to be involved with. And it was funny, actually, just to, to sort of round it off, unless you want to talk more about it. Uh, I did this because for me, it was almost like a quasi-academic experiment. I knew I was leaving. I knew I was heading to Perth to start a very different career to what these guys all do. Uh, and Turnbull was the this sounds weird to say now, but he was the anti-Liberal Party establishment candidate almost. Peter King was the key grouper within the left. He had all the established people around him. Trent Zimmerman, who's now a federal member of parliament, was one of his main people. Turnbull had Jason Felinski working with him, who's now also a federal member of parliament. But most of us were, if you like, the outsiders. And Didn't so Felinski vote trying... against Turnbull? No, he voted with Turnbull. Yeah, no, he was one of R Turnbull's right, main Right to the end? Right to the end. Yeah, he was one of the main numbers people. But but long story short, uh, uh, my interest in this, and I actually wrote quite a bit about this in the Howard biography because John Howard sort of had a role to play, but we won't get into that. But it, what I found fascinating about it was when it was all over, Malcolm Turnbull assumed that my interest in this was because I wanted to stay involved in politics and maybe go work for him and who knows. And he, he almost was completely aghast when I just said, look, no, I'm... I've got three months left and then I'm moving to Perth. You know, you won't see me again. I didn't realise I'd get into political commentary. I thought I was going to be a lifetime academic over there. And he couldn't understand why somebody spent so much of their volunteer time, I was, you know, I wasn't paid, um, stacking the hell out of this thing. I did it as an exercise in curiosity because I'd spent so many years wondering whether I wanted to get into politics myself, deciding against it, and hence taking the academic job post-PhD and heading off to WA. But... Um, I thought, well, this is my one chance out of nowhere as an outsider. I was not an insider. I was not a party member at the time to actually turn back up and say, let's see how this actually works. And it was did you so get a sense fascinating. That, did you get a sense that Malcolm Turnbull, um, had you wanted to stick around, would have rewarded you for your, uh, for your loyal efforts? Oh, yeah, I don't think he'd mind me saying this. He offered me a job. 
Um, so, was, I mean, I would have been on his electorate staff, I assume, because um, he would have been a backbencher when he started. And then the theory is that, you know, you, you then take go along on the ride with him, uh, which is what other people did do, not necessarily people involved at that point in the branch stack, but people that, you know, joined his coattails along the way. But I just said very politely, thanks, but no thanks. I, I don't want to be a political staffer. I'm, I've been there, done that briefly, uh, and I knew I didn't particularly like it. I'm going off to Perth. I've got a tenured academic job coming up. I want to write books, journal articles, and, and teach politics. And, and do and a podcast genuine. one day. Do a podcast one day with a hack. That was your, was your ambition. And- he, was, he was genuinely surprised, though, because it, it is unusual. Because most of the people that join on uh, and are that involved, because I was part of the inner circle for him that were kind of strategizing how to try to win this thing. Um, but I, I, I saw it as an exercise in political science, uh, and it was interesting, Hugh, because. It then took me years after both that and the brief six months that I worked as a Liberal Party staffer. Again, I didn't go through the star chamber. I, I came in very unexpectedly. I actually worked for Tony Abbott as listeners spill their coffee. Um, but I, the whole point of it was that I, I, my interest was in politics and political science. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to get into politics one day or not. I experienced it as an apparatchik and did not like it. And I experienced uh, as a party member, the whole stack thing, which I found interesting, but I wouldn't want to live and die by that in a career sense. So I walked away back to academia, which is where I always saw myself more likely to go as I did the PhD. But it took me years to not be seen as the the ex-liberal staffer. So during the Rudd era, when I started to do a little bit of commentary, when I was becoming critical of you know some of the mismanagement during the Rudd and Gillard years, it took a while before I was anything other than, oh, he's just an ex-liberal staffer. You know, that's the sort of critique now, of course, as you well know, Scott Morrison and his gang, they consider me some sort of lefty, uh, which I don't consider myself. Um, but it's, it's, it was, it, look, it's a, it's a really interesting world. Uh, and it is quite isolated from, uh, if you like, normal people's lives and, you know, the business of public policy, this party apparatchik stuff, it, it's the bread and butter. Of, of what politicians have to do because if they don't control those numbers, they can't do any of the things that they want to do if they do want to do public policy things in Parliament. The iron law of arithmetic, as John Howard would call it. We could dedicate an entire podcast uh, to this <laughs> subject and perhaps at some stage we should. We've got to take a break in a moment, but just briefly to round off on uh, Adam Somirak, what should happen to him? Has he... Uh, is he just a guy who has played the game in the normal way that everyone understands or is there anything to indicate in what we've seen mm. so far that he is? Well, we're going to have to we're going to have to wait and see what the investigation is like. But let me put it this way: this is where a federal ICAC or state-based crime commissions is interesting because, depending on which state you are in, or if it's got more federal overtones than state, that can play a role because they have different powers from state to state. So there will be all sorts of investigations. In New South Wales, for example, using or misusing um, taxpayers' parliamentary resources is something that can have incredibly profound impacts on you as an individual. Uh, Now, whether this happens to him or not is another matter. The, The biggest damage to him, though, is what he's already incurred, which is to get kicked out of the Labor Party, because his whole raison d'etre as a member of parliament was about wielding that power within the organisation that is the Labor Party. And that for him is now no more because he's gone. Persona non grata. 
Uh, there's a lot to talk about in the economy. We're getting a, a, some insights into how Scott Morrison sees how we're going to try and claw our way out of this deep pandemic hole. Um, let's talk about that in just a moment. We'll take a quick break, PVO. Fearing the apocalypse? Brush up on your survival skills with every episode of Australian Survivor and the best of US Survivor on 10Play now. Welcome back. You're listening to um, episode 59 of The Professor and the Branch Stacker. No, hang on. No, this is The Hack and the Branch Stacker, I think is the correct order. Um, Peter Van Onselen revealing all about how it was done as he was the, uh, the keen young lieutenant to uh, Malcolm Turnbull entering Parliament in Wentworth. <laughs> Who knew? I want to see your biography, enough of these other pollies, um, Peter. But look, um, that was a voluntary job. There are a lot of people right now deeply afraid for their paid employment mm. we've got jobs figures coming out of uh, the well, national jobs figures we've got predictions coming out of new south wales of up to three hundred thousand jobs that are going to be lost the economy in new south wales shrinking 10 percent a hundred billion dollars we hear from scott morrison since december that has been wiped out of economic activity because of the pandemic and the consequences to it these are staggering numbers but we've got now starting to get a, a, a bit of meat on the bones of the roadmap that uh uh, that Scott Morrison is laying out for how to get into it. And basically, it's pretty austere. Uh, it's, it's not going to be the government-led recovery. Which I find really interesting because, for a start, it's quite different to what Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said. I can't remember if Morrison himself echoed it as well, but certainly Josh Frydenberg made the point early on that there's no place for ideology in a crisis uh, when pumping the money out for JobKeeper, not as much money as it turns out as we originally thought, but nonetheless pumping out the billions, tens of billions, uh, yet, when it comes to the recovery from a crisis, which really is the bigger crisis, by the way, let me expand on that in a minute, uh, it looks like ideology is back in the mix and there's a, a different sense coming from this government to how the nation fights its way out of it than to what Labor is arguing for. They, they are looking for a more, as you put it, austere way out rather than to spend our way out. It's a, it's a, it's a rebellion against Keynesianism to some extent, I guess, as we come out of the crisis, whereas a lot of economists will tell you, and by the way, conservative economists also, not just economists that, if you like, are naturally Keynesian, who say that we have the capacity to keep stimulating and we need to do so to get the growth into a situation where we're not actually turning the economy into this anemic beast that struggles to survive. So the government's going to have to wear that if it doesn't work. This, you know, they, they could, they've so far been quite rightly able to say this is not a crisis of our making. It's a global pandemic. The impacts are what they are, and we're actually doing pretty well, both health-wise and economically. That's all been true. But if the recovery is much more patchy and scratchy and prolonged than perhaps people expect or than it could have otherwise been with more stimulus, they're going to own that, Hugh because they are deliberately choosing not to put more money in. They are prioritising keeping debt down, even though it's, of course, gone way up. They're prioritising now restraining debt rather than using more debt at a time of incredibly low interest rates to be able to try to pump growth. And that is a very questionable economic strategy, given the climate and given the strength of the Australian economy going into this. We're not wedged in the way that a United States or a Japan or an Italy are, or for that matter, frankly, a France or a UK, when it comes to having the capacity to stimulate our growth such that we can do okay out the other side of this. So it's, it's a risky move. I don't think it'll hurt them at the next election, um, but the one after that it might. 
Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because one of the questions about Scott Morrison in his essential character is what does he really stand for? Is he an ideologue? Does he have any fixed positions on anything? Is he purely a, a pragmatist who will do whatever it takes to get to where he wants to go? We're, we're seeing here, um, the background to it is, is that the polling is showing that Australians have had a very high level of approval for what has been done to get us through this yep. crisis. And that as we've now kept the death toll to the low 100s, just over 100 as we, as we speak, uh, an amazing achievement given where we thought we might be, the concerns have now shifted from, my God, I could die from this thing, to, my God, I'm not worried about that thing, I'm worried about the economy. And yeah. his his argument is that he made to the CEDA conference is that he is not going to make false promises in his words, that he can save every job and every business. And that essentially that is, is his argument that he's making is that sustaining high levels of government intervention, taxpayer intervention or debt driven intervention to try to keep activity in the economy ultimately retards an economy from leaping uh, you know, the, you know, what is it? The, the, the snapback, the, isn't it? The, well, there's a snapback and there's that thing there about the, uh, the what is it? it's not blithe spirits. It's whatever it is that for, I think it was Greenspan or something that the spirits within the, uh, within the economy, the entrepreneurship, all that kind of stuff that should really drive and keep an economy going, that that gets uh, essentially smothered by having too much government intervention. But what he's really aiming for, he says that the economy needs to grow by 4% for the next five years to recover what's been lost. Now, there's nothing in our recent past that suggests that we could grow at 4%, uh, maybe a bounce back year, but over the next five years, because that's far higher than what we've been doing in recent years. So, He's got various suggestions as to how that might happen. IR reform, tax incentives, deregulation, some money for infrastructure and bringing that forward. But he's quite happy to let a lot of businesses, a lot of jobs swing. Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't see how he can aim for such high growth without stimulus to go with it. Uh, and and that, that is what most economists are saying, even relatively conservative ones. So, it, look, it's, it's, it's an interesting strategy. Uh, I mean, there's, look, there's always a point. I, I get that there's a point at which the dollars have to come off. It's about where that point is and how they come off. So, you know, d does job seeker suddenly just return to new start overnight uh, and therefore leave a huge swathe of Australians not used to dealing with the welfare system suddenly living on what had long been regarded as an unacceptably low new start allowance? Uh, and if there's an interim period, how do you do that without a higher uh, job seeker payment becoming a disincentive for some people to get back into work, even if it's part time? That's where welfare reform is your answer, rather than some sort of uh, return to the, you know, to to the failed situation of the previous new start. And job keeper, there are some sectors that don't need it, but there are other sectors that do need it extended. Uh, and we, you know, the OECD only said that the other week. So it's not. No one says this is easy. Um, so you've, sp you've spoken in the ideology. So you've spoken in, in in previous podcasts that that you think the job keeper, job seeker at their current levels for for job seeker will drop off as is legislated in September, but there'll be something else with a new name so that he can yeah. say, well, I kept my promise on those things, and yet uh, there will be more funds found from somewhere to sustain, uh, particularly in the most vulnerable industries, um, you know, support for employment for some time to come. Yeah, I think so, um, but but again, not. Not, not probably not enough 
would, would be where it looks like they're heading. So they, it does seem, as the weeks roll by, that the government are more and more um, focused on trying to wind the stimulus and the support back more quickly than a lot of people might like because their focus seems to be on this idea that the sooner that happens, along the lines of what you were saying, Hugh, the sooner this happens, the sooner the economy can get itself back to normal. The risk in that, though, is that if they take out all that stimulus at a time when the private sector hasn't bounced back yet, uh, or indeed if it doesn't bounce back quickly thereafter, they kill the economy uh, and the growth is far lower than what they're talking about it needing to be. And they are responsible for that. And yes, they'll have reduced, in theory, some debt. But of course, debt then spikes when growth diminishes. You know, like this is the whole Paul Keating, I'd rather grow the pie argument. So if they can get growth to, if you like, erode the significance of the debt over time, that's the best way to do it. Even John Howard used to talk about the importance of that. And I think he's weighed in recently in, in recent weeks and made the same point again. Growing your way out of high debt is far easier than just aiming to pay it off without the high growth. So they want to get the balance right on this. So there's an economic argument there, and it's highly complex. There's also the political consideration, which is always at front of mind for any politician. We're two years away from an election. Uh, will that be enough time for Scott Morrison to be able to indicate, particularly if he's winding off uh, stimulatory policies, to indicate that growth is picking up. There's already been a suggestion from the OECD that uh, growth will pick up by about 4.1% in calendar 2021. So, so that's the sort of the bounce back from a deep dive. Um, will that be sustainable as a kind of a 4% growth going into the future, which is what Scott Morrison says we need, or is that just uh, that little sort of relief rally? Um, but we could be in for years of, um, of, of fairly subdued and highly disrupted economic activity where people are losing their job and feeling the pain of it. Yeah, I think we could easily be in for that. Um, and like, you know, large parts of the world felt that and have continued to feel that um, long after the global financial crisis, whereas we're insulated from it. So the GFC always felt like a bit of a misnomer here in Australia because we got through it as effectively as we did. And that was always one of the political problems that the Rudd government faced was that their arguments about what they did being so important to stave off recession and to save jobs and all the rest of it, it was hard to ever prove because people felt like it was an overreaction. But if you look abroad, including the United States, but certainly parts of Europe, the fallout from the GFC was huge and it took years to recover from. And it was nothing compared to what the fallout to the coronavirus is predicted to be. So Australia, I think, is while we're doing better than other parts of the world yet again, like we did in the GFC, we are going to experience much more dire problems out the other side of the coronavirus crisis than we did out the other side of the GFC. But politically, Hugh, I actually don't think as far as the next election is concerned, it really matters to the Morrison government. Uh, I've written about this and I think I've said this before as well. And you know, <laughs> maybe my election prediction for the next election will be as accurate as my one for the last, but which, which was our first podcast, uh, as I recall. But I, I just can't see, I cannot see how the government finds itself in a situation. Um, I cannot see how the government finds itself in a situation where, um, where it loses the next election. And I say that because if the economy goes well, then the government obviously gets credit for that. But even if the economy fails, over the next couple of years, I could easily see their argument being a very effective one, turning around and saying, do not risk labour in this sort of a climate. 
stick with us, let us finish the course. Now, obviously, three years on from that, if they haven't gotten anywhere, then that can become a problem for them. But I can't see it being a problem for them at the next election, whether they are a success or a failure, because they will pivot in their political attack. Sure. A key factor in this is, is China and the, the mining boom helped us through the GFC, uh, much of that product going to China. Uh, we are being helped now by uh, particularly iron ore heading off to China. Uh, we have a difficulty, though, with China. And in fact, Peter Jennings, who's uh, very well known around Canberra, the uh, executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a, a very senior analyst of the world, is saying that he would recommend against Australians traveling to China uh, there are 100,000 Australians in Hong Kong, for one thing, uh, because of the Calm Gillespie case, which he believes mm. had a political motivation in the announcement of his uh, death sentence. Uh, the former actor who's, who's up on, on a drug importation charge and now sentenced to death. The, the sense that the Chinese partnership is in danger of unraveling or fraying, or even that China, if it wanted to, could create circumstances which could make life more difficult for Scott Morrison to get re-elected. We're speculating here, I am. Um, but nevertheless, you know, have, having watched China closely for two decades, it wouldn't be impossible. It's certainly the Chinese are sophisticated enough to think through these processes and more beyond. But um, they could deliberately set out to make life very difficult for Scott Morrison uh, in a period so that they can, you know, let it be known that... Uh, uh, to not satisfy China carries a political cost in Australia. Yeah, no, I think China can certainly make life more difficult politically, but then I still think the government pivots there. Um, and if, for, so for example, if China are, China are quite explicitly making life hard for Australia, I think that the government can make political mileage out of standing up to China. But I still think that the government, even in that environment where China would make the economic impact harder, for Australia, I still think that the coalition, just because of what opinion polls tell us about voters for some reason trusting them on the economy more than Labor, I think that they always win on this until they have a sustained failure. And I don't think between now and the next election is, is long enough for a perceived sustained failure. I think that they would get another crack rather than risk returning to Labor until perhaps the election beyond that where it starts to become beyond a joke that it's taken, you know, four or five years for them to turn things around. So, you know, as far as election predictions go, Hugh, I'm going early here, but, mm. you know, maybe Scott Morrison is unbeatable at the next election, whether he succeeds or fails in his running of the economy. Well, it doesn't say much for brand labor, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, and they've had this problem ever since the Keating years, you know, they, you know, the, the Keating government uh, and the Hawke government really, but then Keating taking it over, uh, Keating as treasurer during the Hawke years, you know, that their microeconomic reforms were the most important economic reforms in the history of the country. Paul Keating is arguably the greatest treasurer in the history of Australia because of his willingness and his capacity to make those reforms stick and happen. They, they were the absolute bases of the uh, sustained economic growth that Howard then enjoyed, albeit adding to with some of his tax and IR reforms, sure. But when Labor lost in '96 because of what now, by the way, appears like relatively modest debt compared to where we're at, um, Liberals did very well in attacking the debt and the deficit and the Beasley black hole, as they called it, even though Beasley as finance minister was a relatively unknown entity in all of this in the tail end of the Keating government. Um, Labor gave up its economic standing and it's never really recovered from that uh, in the federal sphere. People trust Labor at the state level uh, 
when it comes to managing state economies. But for some reason, federally, uh, there is a distrust of Labor's capacity to run the national economy. And it's a hard one for them because if Liberals do a good job, well, then they get credit and they keep winning. If Liberals do, until they run out of time as per Howard and you know, throw in a bit of work choices, or if they fail in running the economy, people still look at Labor and go, gee, do we really want to give it to them when times are tough? And they've got to get over that. Um, but I don't see them getting over it in time for the next election. Okay, and uh, we're out of time, but another one just to watch, as uh, Media Watch touched on, is uh, Bernard Kaliri, the former ACT Attorney General and Barrister, who is in court in a secret trial. We can tell you nothing about it except that it relates to uh, East Timorese uh, uh, or spying operations against East Timor. Um, Another advance of secrecy and lack of transparency in our body politic. It is certainly a disgrace. Uh, that this is taking place. Um, we we'll, might talk about that in a future podcast. PVO, get out there, get some new members signed up and uh, change <laughs> the nation. <laughs> Great to talk to you as always. Talk soon, Hugh. Ciao. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubelin. And I spoke with Mr Jubelin not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.